I'm Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Our mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about the VBC on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. Welcome to the VBC's Lioness, The Origin Story. This is a special podcast dedicated to telling the history of Lioness vets from their point of view. Over the course of this series, we'll cover everything from Team Lioness to female engagement teams and the cultural support teams. Our goal is to shed light on this unexplored history. Joining me again is filmmaker and writer Daria Summers. In 2008, Daria Summers, along with her filmmaking colleague Meg McClagan, released Lioness, a documentary that revealed the history of a group of women support soldiers who went to Iraq in 2003 as mechanics, clerks, and engineers, but ended up serving as the original Lioness soldiers. Although Lioness's mission was to defuse tensions with Iraqi women and children, they fought in some of the bloodiest battles of the Iraq War. I'm going to hand it off here to Daria, who's going to introduce today's special guest. Uh, very excited for the conversation today. Take it away, Daria. Well, I just want to say hello to our listeners and that today is very exciting because we have two amazing guests, which I've been trying to get together for a while now, and I couldn't be more thrilled. Um, we have Anne Coughlin is the Lewis F. Powell Jr. Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. Her primary research and teaching interests are in the areas of criminal law, criminal procedure, feminist jurisprudence, and law and humanities. In 1999, Coughlin received an all-university teaching award, one of the university's highest honors for excellence in teaching, research, and service. She also led the Molly Pitcher Project, which challenged the ban on women in military combat, and what, which was the first step towards getting the DOD to rescind the policy. Coughlin is a graduate of NYU School of Law and has clerked for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Lewis F. Powell, Jr. And in addition to Anne, we have Dr. Ellen Herring. Dr. Herring is a retired U.S. Army Colonel and West Point graduate. She holds a PhD in conflict analysis and resolution and has taught at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, the U.S. Army War College, and Georgetown University. She is a research fellow at the Service Women's Action Network, as well as a senior research fellow at Women in International Security where she oversaw the Combat Integration Initiative. Herring has published numerous articles and papers on a wide variety of military and security related topics. She has been a guest speaker on foreign and domestic news shows and has testified before Congress. And of special interest to this podcast, she was a plaintiff in the original lawsuit calling for DOD to end its combat exclusion policy for women. I'm so delighted to have you both here and I'm just going to jump right in and because one one of the things that we were really anxious to do on this podcast is really get the history of how this the ban um the lawsuit to bring down the combat exclusion policy ban um got started and so Anne I'd like to start with you because I I know it started with you in a class that you were teaching. And if you could just take us from that uh, to the Molly Pitcher project and then how you got to uh, um, Ellen. Yeah, thanks, Daria. It's a great joy to be here and to be back in the presence of Ellen Herring, one of my uh, forever heroes, I think is the right way to say it for so many reasons. So I'm just absolutely overjoyed to be here. Um, and I'm going to start by making clear that though the lawsuit played a role in 
taking down the combat exclusion. Um, we were hardly the first to notice that this was a problem. People like Ellen and even um, women who had served in the military long before had known that this was an issue and were discussing it and worrying about it and thinking about ways in which to, to change the law, to change the policy, um, to bring women into this very important space in uh, national public service. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the issue is one that had bothered me ever since I entered law teaching. Um, I was focused on the law of sex discrimination in connection with many classes that I taught, uh, feminist theory, sex discrimination law, and so forth. And when I looked around the world, it was beginning to seem to be the case that there were, were no more examples of formal discrimination against women, particularly when it came to the federal government. The idea was that the government had to be neutral with respect to sex when it came to assigning uh, responsibilities, uh, assigning obligations, awarding jobs, opportunities, and so on and so forth. Um, the, the government was required to judge men and women on their own merits, um, not to uh, prohibit one sex or the other from participating in some uh, occupation, say, or having access to some opportunity. And the combat exclusion was just this glaring example of formal discrimination. The law saying to women, you may not participate in ground combat no matter what, no matter how strong, no matter how smart, no matter how brave, no matter how fit, no matter how patriotic, you, because of your sex, are disabled from participating here. And as I have argued over the years, um, uh, service in the military is one of the most profound ways in which uh, a, a citizen can serve their nation. And th this was just a problem. But of course, I'm an academic, you know, I'm sitting in the, my, my, my office in Charlottesville. And so I'm fretting about this, but in kind of an academic way. Then to cut to the point where you began, I decided to uh, create a classroom exercise. I was teaching a class called Law and Public Service in which we talk about a whole array of public service jobs. And I had long thought that military service, as I've been saying, is one of the most important forms of public service. This was a space in which women were, again, integrated to some extent, but not fully. Um, and because they continued to be discriminated against, they were left out of very important spaces, combat. So I thought I will ask the students to consider what it would be like to bring a lawsuit to challenge this ground combat exclusion. And so I created an exercise and tried to make it as realistic as possible. Ask them, imagine that we are a team and we are going to create litigation. What would it look like? What, are, what would our arguments be? Who would our perfect plaintiffs be? What would we expect the government to say? Who would our dream team of experts be? And so on and so forth. So I did this in the classroom and the students really enjoyed it. It found it very engaging, I'm happy to say. But three members of the class and one of their friends who came along to the class, he wasn't enrolled in the class, but there were four students, I've got to name them because they are incredibly important human beings in this endeavor. Um, it was Rebecca Cohn, Helen Oberon-Hardeman, Ariel Linnett, and Kyle Malinek. 
they came to me after class and said, you've got to bring this lawsuit. And I said to them, no, I can't. I am an academic lawyer. I don't have the skill. I don't have the resources. No. And they just would simply not let it go. So finally, I agreed that I would supervise a class that we would create our own little seminar, not to bring a lawsuit, but to study the framework. What would a lawsuit look like? So we would sort of simulate in the classroom creating the lawsuit. Again, identifying who are the plaintiffs, who were the appropriate defendants, where should we bring the case, what would the arguments look like, who would the experts be, and so on and so forth. The first session, I meet with them. I say to them, this is in the fall of 2012. I say to them, what are your wishes? This is your class. They said, we're going to litigate. And of course, I said, no, we're not. Um, but by the end of the semester, they had done the groundwork, including the important groundwork that led us to Ellen Herring and Jane Baldwin, who was our other lead plaintiff in the case. And yes, I have to be really clear, this team, we named ourselves the Molly Pitchers. I can talk to you about why we chose that name if you're interested, um, or you think the listeners might be interested, um, yes. was the first lawsuit of this kind. And we were, there had been, the ACLU had been asked to bring a case like this in the 1980s, didn't, because at that time they were pursuing the uh, exclusion of women from the draft, from the selective service registration process. And then for whatever reason, it's just lay, lies dormant. Again, hence it was bothering me. Someone needed to bring this lawsuit. Why was no one bringing the lawsuit? The students agreed, said, we've got to bring the lawsuit. So we ended up again doing that. And at, then after that, of course, the ACLU filed some lawsuits of its own as well. So that's where it started. And I'm happy to talk more about you know, any of these issues that you would like to pursue. But I really have to say it was this incredible experience for me. These were four first-year law students and they said, we've got to do this. And I, as their professor, went along with them, but they really get the credit for pushing. Well, it just makes me think that though, at the same time you get, you were, your class what you were teaching, you had started the conversation and had you, you know, had you not been their professor, perhaps the conversation wouldn't have started in a way which have, which would have inspired them to sort of pursue the subject or, or, or feel the passion of like the inequity of all this. So will they sound like four amazing students and also I'll just include you in with, with them. You really, they could have done it without you. You couldn't have got that far without them. So you were all in it. And just to point out, uh, Molly Preacher, no, Molly Pitcher was a, a Revolutionary War uh, woman who went into combat. Yeah, the reason that we chose the name is that one of one of our team, Kyle Malinek, um, again, he wasn't a member of my class, but he came along because he's a military history buff. He was a first year law student, a military history buff. And he was just absolutely fascinated by this problem and wanted to participate in the conversation. When we formed the group, he came up with the idea that we should call ourselves the Molly Pitcher Project. 
And Molly Pitcher is a fictional name that was given to a woman or possibly a whole group of women who provided support to soldiers in the Revolutionary War. So one of the points we were trying to make was twofold. One, Molly Pitcher is a fictional name. So people have often acted as if it was a myth that there, because there was no actual woman named Molly Pitcher. Apparently women would carry water to the soldiers when they were thirsty, perhaps when they were wounded or when they were fighting. And the idea is, is that the men would call out Molly Pitcher, meaning bring me a pitcher of water. So the name Molly Pitcher catches on. There's probably more than one explanation for the name. But what Kyle thought, and we ultimately talked about this a good bit, was that it was a perfect name because it both showed that the public thought that women's participation was fictional or marginal, but in fact, it was real. Women were actually really there. Women like Ellen Herring and, and her colleagues that broke through at West Point and others, they were actually there, but they're not treated as if they were really there. The, the military relied on them, needed their help. In fact, in the wars in, in the Middle East, were sending them into combat, but without acknowledging that officially. So women end up being a footnote or ended up being treated as fictional. So we wanted to bring Molly Pitcher back into the focus and say, no, she's real. This is a real, we are talking about real women here. Let's, let's figure out who they are and start to name them. So that, I love that symbolism. That's perfect. And I, I, as soon as I read that name, I thought, well, that has, I know that has meaning. I'm going to find out. So now, now I want to ask Ellen, how did, how did you connect with Anne? Hi. So yeah, thank you for having me, Daria. This is a great show, great program. So I connected with Anne. I actually, Anne, you said 2012. I think it was 2011, in the fall of 2011, when I saw actually my husband at the time. We were both still in the military. We were both uh, serving colonels stationed in Northern Virginia. And my husband saw an article in the Army Times it was talking about this um, effort to develop a lawsuit. A reporter had picked it up, and we get the Army Times. Um, he pointed it out to me and I was like, I was really excited about it. And so I immediately reached out to the reporter and I wanted to be put in contact with the professor who was leading the project. And so he put me in contact with Anne and we started chatting. And initially at that time, I was very senior. Um, I didn't think that I would ever be a plaintiff. I didn't think that I would qualify. I was hoping that it was going to be a class action lawsuit. We'd have this long list of women who had served in combat. Um, and that it would be, you know, I'd kind of be buried somewhere in there as an advisor um, to help um, with as much as I knew at that point, with, because I knew a lot by then. I knew what women had been doing. I knew how many had been in combat. I knew how many had been wounded, killed. I knew they had served with special operations teams. I knew they had served on ranger teams. Um, and been wounded in combat, wounded and two were killed with serving on ranger teams. Um, so I thought I was going to be an advisor. Well, it turns out as they started, as Anne and her team started interviewing potential plaintiffs, um, somehow or another, it, <laughs> it ended up with just uh, two of us, myself and Command Sergeant Major Jane Baldwin, and Anne can kind of speak to why. But, um, and we were both very senior. I had not personally been in combat, but Jane had been. 
Um, so we did have some combat experience on our team, but I could show that I had been denied many jobs over the year as a woman, um, that I couldn't access combat jobs. And I could also, by then, you know, I'm senior, I've got a lot of education. I know that, um, you know, coming out of West Point, women were limited to support positions and all of generals, well, 80% of the generals in the army are pulled from those exact occupations that women were not allowed to access. So my chances and my female classmates' chances of ever becoming general officers had been, you know, slim to none, um, simply because we weren't even allowed to access the, the occupations that um, produce our, our, our senior leaders in the military. So anyways, long story short, I ended up agreeing to be one, to, one of the plaintiffs and um, we filed actually in May of 2012 um, and eventually managed to bring on an entire, gosh, well, the, the partner, Chris Sipes from a big DC law firm, they were our representation. She can talk about a little bit more about how that happened. Um, we filed in May of 2012. I really had no idea what I was getting myself into the day the lawsuit dropped, started getting calls from media. Um, all over the world. In fact, the BBC was the first media organization to contact me and want to know, you know, who are you? What's this about? What's going on? Um, six months after we filed, the ACLU filed a second lawsuit on the West Coast. We filed in DC. The ACLU filed uh, the second lawsuit on the West Coast in San Francisco. Um, that was in November of 2012. And they came on board with four more service women. And in their situation, they there's uh, plaintiffs were all combat um, experienced, uh, more junior women, um, one enlisted, three officers, and they had uh, Marines as well as uh, Army soldiers um, in that lawsuit. And okay, so we filed in May, they filed in November, and in January, the Secretary of Defense overturned the policy. It's amazing, and just in listening to both of you tell it, it, it this sort of because as I do the podcast and I talk with women who were actually uh, not not trained for it, but finding themselves in combat as early as 2003 in Iraq, and then there's there's this through line and an evolution of it uh, where they're being really, and they're not finding themselves in combat by accident. They're actually in in the lioness and the FETs and the cultural support teams. They're actually. They, they're needed, they're strategic assets, and they're actually doing things that um, their male counterparts couldn't do because of the cultural situations. And so you you have all that and you have all these years and, it, and, and there's so much frustration involved just in terms of recognition and then returning home and trying to get the appropriate VA benefits or just recognition in general, like, and it, you know, some of this is just painful to listen to. And I've talked to so many of these women and yet right about the time, like you, you started this 2011, uh, January, uh, 2013, Panetta rescinds the policy. So would you, I mean, it's, that seems very, um, sort of like fast, uh, and I was just wondering if I could speak to one, why be the DOD, um, you know, why they didn't say, like they hadn't said yes before, why did they suddenly say, okay, and why didn't they go to court? And how did that 
how did it seem to work? So, so Ellen has the deep knowledge of so many things here, but I'll, I'll just quickly chime in and give you, you know, my, my perspective on all of this. Again, I want to be, you know, in, in incredibly humble and careful about talking about the impact of, of litigation. I mean, your listeners are sophisticated people and they know that law is just a piece or, or lawsuits are just a piece of larger cultural changes, just, just a piece. And, and, and here, uh, uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned 2003, um, since 9-11, uh, this had been an issue that was just driving me crazy. I just, you know, because you see what's happening around the world. You see that at least the need that the U.S. military is expressing for um, um, talented help. And again, the thought that they're turning away, you know, half of the population potentially, um, and particularly when, when women were feeling the, the, the call to go um, was something that was really bothering me. So I was arguing about this to anyone that would listen, of course, but, but of course, no one listens maybe until you bring a lawsuit, right? But there were plenty of people working in this space, women who were actually doing the work in the field of combat, and then folks like Ellen who were studying it and other policymakers and so forth. I think that by the time we filed the lawsuit, well, I do know that my team and I thought really hard about whether filing the lawsuit would be a mistake in the sense that it would suddenly make the Pentagon, the Department of Defense become very adversarial. You know, maybe there were certain policy changes in the works that they were going to do, and we should just let that process continue and file, because filing the lawsuit would just make everybody lawyer up and refuse to, you know, to, to, to proceed uh, along lines that they had already been thinking. And the, but I talked to a bunch of people, Ellen and I probably talked about this issue as well. And everyone said, no, just go ahead, file the lawsuit. The more pressure you can bring to bear, the better. But again, given what Ellen had said, and you, Dari, have alluded to us to this too, the military, in fact, was using women. It was doing this work around. The policy said women cannot be assigned to ground combat units or something like that. It's a little more complicated, but it forbids the assignment of women to ground combat. So what the military was doing was, quote, attaching them. You probably know that. That's this lawyer thing. So suddenly they were saying, well, you're not assigned there, but we need you there for cultural reasons, for personnel reasons, for all kinds of reasons. So we're gonna attach you. So women were pulled out of their ordinary assignments and were sent there. And, and as you both have said, they were doing the work. They were doing the work without the training, without the recognition, without the support that they needed afterwards. And so I myself couldn't imagine how the military would defend this suit in court. Now, we haven't talked about the reasons why they had this policy in place. It had been in place for many years, but as early as Eisenhower, there were official uh, acknowledgments, we can't fight a war without women. Now, he wasn't thinking about women in combat, but they knew that they needed women's help, right? And so that was one of the things that I was thinking was, I couldn't imagine with a straight face going into court and saying to a judge, uh, yeah, we've been attaching them, but we should still be allowed to refuse to assign them um, because, you know, again, whatever their their grounds were. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I want to be humble about the power of law, but I think uh, or lawsuits, but I think they can give a nudge. And I think this one did. But again, because there was so much momentum because of the work that women like Ellen and her colleagues have been doing yes. on the ground for so long. Yeah. And 
No, thank you. That's that's an, a, an excellent, excellent explanation. And it just makes me want to ask Ellen um, specifically at what point, like, so you were one of the early women to get into West Point, right? Yes. So you were a groundbreaker from the get-go. Um, at what, and, and, and kudos to you to just, to be able to do that and, and to get through it and to kind of like blaze that trail. But at what point did you, in your career, did you begin to realize, or did you always know that because of the comp, women couldn't be in combat arms, that it was going to affect your career? So I probably, it was probably late in my career that I discovered as I, you know, started graduate work and then my PhD that I realized how much of an impact it had actually had. I don't think early in my career, I had a clue. Um, I knew that we were being discriminated against right from the outset at West Point. So yes, I, I entered West Point in 1980 when the first class of women graduated. We were confined or restricted in our assignment options. Um, but we were, I mean, my first assignment out of West Point, I went to Germany. Um, I, I really enjoyed the Army. It was a good place for me. Um, I became a signal officer in the Signal Corps, eventually Civil Affairs. So there were opportunities for me. But, but along the way, I knew that my opportunities as a signal officer and a Civil Affairs officer um, were limiting other opportunities because as an 05 and an 06, eventually, um, there were positions like operational positions and they'd be coded combat arms. And so I couldn't have these cool operational jobs because they were coded for the guys who'd already had uh, combat experience, even though um, a lot of guys had not had combat experience any more than I had had. Um, but because they were combat arms, they were able to get jobs that I couldn't. Um, so I think it was probably maybe oh by the time I was a lieutenant colonel, and then definitely by the time I was a colonel, I recognized the the limitations of my branch relative to really exciting job opportunities that were available. And by then, I was promoted to 06 in 2008. We were in the middle of you know long time wars, and right. jobs were you know prohibited to me because of my support occupations. And and. No, that's a great answer, and it really helps me understand, because um, obviously, if you were feeling that way, other women, clearly, who who were in that class or who had just joined up and, and risen on their own merit, um, I mean, everybody rose on their own merit, but uh, outside of West Point, were feeling that to some extent. Was there a point at which you began, because it seems to me that the, the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan because of their length, their ongoingness and all the troops that are kind of like, for those who were aware or were watching, it kind of like exposed the real, the problem of this inequity because ever since like when, when we were making the film Lioness, one of, one of the things that we noticed right away, and, and this had a lot of resonance for us who had been, you know, we, feminists studied the theory, understood things just through our own lives, that if you look at the lioness and, and, and you look at the FETs and the cultural support teams, those women were literally had an original MOS that they went in on, but then they were pulled to do another job and they weren't, they weren't uh, 
it was ad hoc on the ground. It wasn't anything that was okay if you'd gone to Congress. But then they weren't recognized for it. And it kind of seemed to us to fill in that, okay, women, too many jobs, barely recognized for one, <laughs> you know, not fully compensated or acknowledged. And um, was there a point at which like you understood it that way or is that just from an outsider's perspective? Okay, so yeah, I'm, what I failed to mention is by the time I was, gosh, I was teaching at the Command and General Staff College. I knew that we were doing these stability operations in Afghanistan. I wrote a paper about it. I met some of the special forces guys that were doing it. And they were telling me about, well, they were talking about how much they need women on their teams. And so the cultural support teams eventually are created to fill that gap. Um, in their inability to interact with half of the population. And so I actually attended a number of meetings down at Fort Bragg with a special ops community as a sort of advisor um, because I'd written this paper, this extensive paper about stability operations. And um, one of the com command sergeant majors said, and they were talking about the how they were creating this cultural support teams, assigning them to these special ops teams. He said, this is essentially made the combat exclusion policy moot. And I was surprised to hear a, a man, you know, a senior off NCO in a room admit that, that this had made the entire policy moot because we were assigning, not even attaching at this point, women to special operations and uh, ranger direct action teams. So we were, it's so in violation of the existing policy that like, um, and said, DOD did not have a leg to stand on relative to, I don't know how that they could possibly have defended um, this policy if we'd actually gone to court with them. So if I could just interject there quickly, um, one of the things that uh, we did as a team, the, one of the things the students were really committed to was saying, we first do no harm. You know, you academic law professor lady think that this is a very interesting suit from, you know, an academic re removed perspective, but we need to figure out whether service women and service men agree with you. You know, do they think, is there a strong sentiment out there on the part of service women that, the, that a lawsuit like this should go forward? Um, because if not, if, if you're burdening people, if you're harming them by bringing litigation just because you think it's important as an academic or an abstract matter, um, we're not going to do this. So one of the first things we did, the students did, was to talk to as many stakeholders as we could, that is women and then men as well that were in the armed forces, veterans, and so on and so forth. And we just overwhelmingly heard the kinds of stories um, that Ellen mentioned, you know, the you know, again, many of the folks that we talked to were unwilling to be plaintiffs in part because they were young and they were terrified of having a target put on their back. You know, Ellen mentioned how much attention she got the day the lawsuit was filed and she mentions being unprepared for it. Well, she was somewhat prepared. She knew this was gonna happen, but some of the youngsters were like, I got a career to worry about. I can't even get the trainings that I need because I can't go to combat arms trainings. But you know, I'm totally on board with you. And then they would tell us stories, you know, and some of these came from women who were just on the verge of aging out. Like, and women said, you got to do this now because 
just because, you know, before I retire, I want to see this change come. This was coming from a woman who had wanted to go to ranger school and it was over for her. But, you know, all of these opportunities had been lost. Um, and then younger women who had served on the kinds of cultural engagement teams that Ellen mentions, uh, the cultural support, um, they too, you know, you know, again, I, I don't want to disclose personal information, but we just heard about the real harms that people carried home with them, um, the way in which this service, you know, was important to them and to the military, but they weren't getting the support they needed. And they, they, they just really felt that it was important to change the law. And then also one of my, my most interesting anecdotes, as Ellen was mentioning, the, the idea that th this was over, um, the, the folks in practice, the service members in practice, including the men, were treating it as if it was over. So one of the primary reasons for, that I was told for not allowing women to serve was privacy. You know, women and men could not be mixed together, you know, and sort of mingled in private spaces, whatever that meant, you know, barracks, dorms, changing rooms, showers, pee-pee, you know, going to the bathroom. And this really worried me as a, you know, as an academic, like, oh my gosh, maybe there's something to this. But if the women themselves who were there told me, you know, at the first night, a woman who was attached as a medic, you know, was all by herself in the tent, you know, like she's not supposed to be sleeping with the men. And she's feeling lonely and scared, you know, over in Afghanistan. And the men go, come on over here. I mean, they had worked this out. This, you know, they, they were working together as if this policy was a dead letter. Um, and then just the overwhelming support that we got from the stories and the narratives that we've heard. Yeah, you got to go for it, right? Seems like it is one of those things that had really somehow at that moment, everything came together. It kind of reached a tipping point. And, but and so what Anne is, is talking about just in terms of, you know, the guy saying, oh, you know, come on in, don't be ridiculous. We're all here together. Um, just that idea of, because I know you've written about this, um, Ellen, but the idea about like the culture of how important the culture is and, and developing the culture and just, um, you know, shifting it so it's not an exclusion culture, but um, an inclusion culture and in the sense that that had already also kind of started to happen in some cases, not all cases, but it wasn't impossible. Right. So, um, okay. So the women of the cultural support team will talk to you about, and I interviewed many of them over the years about their experiences with each team. When they would get to a new team who had never had women before, it was really rough and a rocky road. Um, but the longer they served with them, the more accepted they became and the more um, open men became to the idea of having women on their teams. Um, and I, I think we're seeing that today with women who are now in the infantry and in the armor. Um, there's still a lot of resistance, but it's mostly from men who have never served with women. Um, the, when women are on your teams, you get to know them, you recognize their skills, their abilities. And as long as... Uh, qualifications stay the same, you know, everybody meets the same standards and women can do the same thing that the men are required to do. Men over time accept women into their organizations. The problem is we still have so few women in the infantry and the armor branches that there's still many, many men out there who have not served with women. And so we're still struggling with the culture, a culture of acceptance. And I mean, to some extent that culture is, uh, is, you know, it's um, it's it comes in with people who sign up. I mean, it it's it's not 
disconnected to the culture that we all live in in this country. And so that can be um, uh, like, it's very uneven, <laughs> can I say? Yeah, I mean, discrimination, misogyny, um, sexism, it still exists throughout our culture writ large. Um, and men that come into the military, you know, they bring that with them. And then the men that are in the military, they still have that. So this is just a big cultural change. It, cultural changes take time. Um, they're hard, they're rocky. And unfortunately, there are casualties along the way. And in this case, it's almost always women. Right. And that, I've got so many things on my mind I want to ask. But, okay, I'll just say, because the, the one thing that I remember um, speaking with Lori Manning about um, from the Research Policy Institute. Um, she Early on, she was saying, like literally uh, back in 2004, that you know one of the issues with us going into Iraq is that in terms of the decision-making, there were no women were there were no women in the high ranks that were making any of these decisions and as a consequence they went in and there was like oh women and children cultural norms and i mean on the other side of a conflict equation not on the other side but what from when one country goes women and children pay the highest price and and had and it's not to say that women automatically are you know know that know the best things or anything but there's just you can't argue that there isn't some literal awareness because women are our mothers can be mothers that they wouldn't have necessarily they probably would have thought that through there would have been someone who said and, and anyway you don't have that resource if you don't let women get higher in the ranks they won't have that contribution and again all we hear is time after time is that women and children all we, and and the elderly always bear the brunt of uh you know the horror of a conflict well well that's the deep irony i mean the notion is that that women i mean one of the reasons for the ground combat exclusion is that women are fragile women need to be protected women are as courageous or as strong they're not cut out to be soldiers the implication being they should be at home, they should be protected. You know, that's something that's that's very important. They need to guard the, the domestic sphere while men go out and fulfill the warrior function of protecting the wife and the family at home. And that, of course, over, completely overlooks the reality of the way in which war shapes the lives of women, whether they're in fact in combat, you know, allowed to fight in combat or not, and the, the kinds of contributions that they would make to a discussion about, you know, what this whole enterprise that we call today call national security, what it should look like. And again, from the abstract point of view, that is something that really, really bothered me. You know, some t t along the way, as I said, this is something I became obsessed with after 9-11, um, was who in, was going to be called on to participate both on the ground and then way up, you know, high up on the ceiling, the people calling the shots were women going to be included? That was something that was really worrying me. And as Ellen pointed out, women just in theory, because women can't do ground combat, they can't be in the leadership roles. They can't contribute at all to this discussion. 
And so that that's kind of an abstract, potentially, you, you know, an art, an abstract argument, but it's also a very real one. When you see folks like Ellen, her colleagues at West Point, they're just not going to be allowed to be part of that discussion about something that really affects their lives, their children's lives, their families' lives, their their nation's lives. And also by their own human experience, they have this, they could contribute. They could have, Ellen could have been at the table and made a difference. I mean, I think that's, that's what, um, without knowing either of you at that time, when we were making Lioness and 2004 2005 that was like in our in our minds that that was one of the things because there's also something about um how the issue is framed and i think people who want to counter it have a very um you know a, a very oppressive way of framing it um and and it's and it's really it's about some it's about many more things it's not just nobody wants to be in combat in theory i mean like that's not a good place to be who wants a war nobody wants a war and i've always found that the people who know most that they don't want a war are the people who have been there or who serve in the military they don't want that but but um so it's but it's about a lot more than that can I jump in and just say a couple of things that I've been thinking about? First of all, men are severely impacted by war, just like women. Um, I think both sexes are equally but differently impacted uh, by war. Um, but I will say that men make wars. They make the wars and women are expected to go along with them and they suffer the consequences of them. Um, having women, now <laughs> this is, a lot of kind of feminist uh, theory that is in development and is evolving today. But there is a strong belief that the more that women participate in these kinds of big decisions, the less likely we are to have wars, um, that less likely um, communities from, from the lowest level communities to international will violence decreases. The more women participate, the less violence exists. So that's really my one of my goals is never going to happen in my lifetime, but that there's equal participation of women at every level and that the result will be less violence and conflict globally. Yeah, that, that's such an interesting point, Ellen, and you're right. That's a, a, a developing strand of feminism and, and we don't yet know where that will go and we want to be careful about it. Um, because it's hard to be sure that women are less violent. We were talking before about misogyny and um, not just the vestiges, but you know, actual outright expressions of misogyny that we see in the culture and in the military towards women. Um, but of course, women themselves can internalize cultural perspectives that are misogynistic or sexist. And it's, it's so very complicated. But again, I go back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her sort of basic insight about how important it is to have women, as you were saying, at all levels of the decision-making process. So when she's being um, interviewed by the Senate Judiciary Committee or the hearings, you know, for that elevate her to uh, the court, 
you know, what she says is I just want lots of women's faces here, you know, without regard to what or without guessing what their particular perspectives might be. So so women are not monolithic, or at least this is the position where that that I started this project with. Women are not monolithic, but whatever their perspective is on war, um, like Ellen, I'm inclined to think that we're going to be seeing um, a development of new theory and new empirics that suggests that we have more peace to the extent we have more faces at the table. But whatever their perspectives are, um, our basic commitment is we have to treat you equally. And if you have the talent that the nation needs at this time, there is absolutely no justification for keeping you out because you're a woman. The other thing, of course, is there's a lot of power at stake here too, right? You know, it's, the, you know, we, we were talking before about how no one wants to go to combat. And that's exactly what I said for years. I mean, no, I would not want any child of mine to have to go, but I certainly wouldn't want my daughter to be excluded just because she was a girl, you know, I, I'd much rather have her be excluded on the merits um, than just because she's a girl. No one wants to go, son or daughter, or at least it's a, a very freighted, dreadful, scary decision. But at the same time, with that responsibility um, comes awesome power because those folks, the folks who are deemed capable of participating in that kind of warfare, are the people who end up in really powerful decisions, deciding, for example, should we have global warfare? Um, so with great responsibility comes this awesome power. So I, it's one of the reasons why, again, I think, no, I don't want to go to combat, but I'm going to still continue to have it apply in some exclusive way. Um, and women are just had been kept out. And that's what we were hoping to change. Yeah. I love that explanation. I love that explanation. And that, so that makes me want to just then shift because I know after the, um, I mean, the policy was rescinded, but maybe Ellen, you can tell us like, that was only the rescinding of that policy that actually guaranteed nothing in a way, like, cause you have, it was all the serve the work you had to do the work. And I, of all the services and getting them to open things up and you were there was still plenty of resistance so i know you worked on the integration the gender integration initiative i wonder if you could talk a little about that sure so um it was secretary panetta lifted the policy in january of 2013 but he gave the services three years to study whether or not they could fully integrate women so then we entered into this three-year study period where each of the services um, went about their studies in a different way. The Air Force, you know, there wasn't really a lot left for the Air Force to open up. It was really just their special operations community. The Navy had a little bit left to open. This mostly affected the ground combat services of the Army and the Marine Corps. Um, the Army basically accepted, okay, we're gonna go with this. And they spent their three years um, not really trying to keep women out, but they did spend their, but they did not spend their three years figuring out how to fully integrate women. So we ha they had this three years where they could have spent their time coming up with, okay, what are we gonna do with equipment and training? And do we need to change any of that to incorporate women? And they did not do much of it at all. Um, they kind of sat on that three years and just continued to exclude women. 
The Marine Corps, on the other hand, was dead set against women in ground combat units, and they spent their three years and a lot of taxpayer money trying to prove that women should not serve in ground combat units. Um, they did these extensive studies. We, we looked at their studies once they were finally published, um, and there was a lot of faults with the data and the research and how they conducted these studies because, of course, their conclusion was, no, we cannot integrate women. And so the Marine Corps asked for an exception to policy. They said, we can't do it. We need an exception. And the next Secretary of Defense, it was Ash Carter at the time, he rejected their request for an exclusion. Um, and they, he said, nope, open up. And so that was three years later in 2016. Um, all the services were directed at that time after this three-year period where they were allowed to prepare to admit women and they opened them up. Um, the Army opened up in the spring of 2016 and by, I guess it was June, we had the first women um, who went to infantry and armor uh, officers courses and they started, okay, one of the things that the, the Secretary of Defense did, which I still have a beef with, is he imposed this, they called it a leader's first policy, which was another, again, a discriminatory policy. It said that women have to be, women officers of a certain rank have to be, women officers or NCOs, sorry, mid-grade women officers or NCOs had to be in these ground combat units before enlisted women were allowed to join those units. So they didn't have many women crossover of any kind of rank. First lieutenants did move in a few first lieutenants, but mostly they just brought up second lieutenants. So these brand new second lieutenants came in the infantry and the armor, um, and they were they were the leaders, the leaders first, um, before enlisted women were going to be brought in through the ranks. Um, I still have a lot of problems with that leaders first po policy because, of course, they did leaders first. The training should have gone to the male leaders who were going to bring these women into their units. Instead, it was second lieutenants were expected to lead, somehow or another, lead these junior enlisted women who came into the infantry and the armor units. It, and, then they, and then the army only did it in two locations. We said, they said, okay, we're going to send armor, yeah, armor to Fort Hood, infantry to Fort Bragg. It's going to be very limited, certain units, and it's going to be very controlled. Um, Lots and lots of problems I could talk about for, uh, oh, that would be a whole nother podcast associated with that. The Marine Corps has still, I don't know that there are any enlisted infantry in the Marine Corps uh, today. Uh, very few women have to this day made it through their infantry officer basic course. Um, armor officers in the, um, from the Marine Corps are actually trained by the Army, and a few women have gone into the Marine Corps in the armor branch. Um, but how many, I, I couldn't even tell you. Special forces and special operations remain severely limited where women are concerned. We've had a few women now, well, we've had over a hundred women now earn Ranger tabs, which is the kind of the qualification requirement to get into the Ranger Regiment. So we have had some women serve in the Ranger Regiment, um, mostly officers, um, I think a few, I don't think any enlisted women have been in the Ranger Regiment yet. So the special operations community in the Marine Corps remains deeply, deeply entrenched with keeping women out or limiting the number of women that get in. Um, the U.S. Army's armor and infantry have been better. Armor has been the best of the branches, the ground combat branches, to admit women. Um, and kind of, that's where we are today.
you know, it's just an ongoing process. And I think as, I mean, I think one of you said in the interview, it's just like, you know, this is deep change and it just, you know, it, it has to happen over time, but you can't stop pushing and you can't stop. Uh, and that's why it's so much work. Um, and, but the, the story, what you're saying about the Marines and their resistance is, is really interesting because in, um, in the spring of 2004, one of the women in our film, the lioness who were in Ramadi, uh, Shannon Morgan, was who had been going out on lioness missions. And she happened to be a good shot because she grew up in the woods in Arkansas. But it's just interesting because the she was attached to the two four Marines when they were going in the when there was the big blow up in Fallujah and Ramadi and two, with the rise of the insert the first rise of the insurgency in two thousand and four, she was such a good shot. They in her in her, her group they made her the saw gunner. She was the saw gunner. They didn't have any once they were there and they realized she was the best shot. They didn't have any problem boots on the ground at the moment. Um. But the training and the suddenness, and also because she made a big difference having a woman there when they would get into the houses. So she, you know, it was just this sense of being, um, you know, kind of used, but also because of there was very little uh, training. Um, and, it, you know, there was no real training. I mean, there was maybe some preparedness like a week before or something, but and the different language between the army and the Marines that at one point she found herself sort of surrounded by a insurgents and alone and literally had to fight her way out. I mean, it's like an amazing story <laughs> and, and she made it, but, and, and she certainly came back home and had to fight with the VA for her recognition because, but it's just, it's, I, I'm only mentioning that because it's like this, we can talk and everybody can talk at the table and 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 argue and memos and stuff we can't do this we can't do that but look at what happened right and you know there are so many stories like that of women who experience a lot of direct ground combat and got no not just not that they just didn't get recognized for it people have denied that they could possibly have had that much experience yes one of the CS that was assigned to direct action ranger teams. Um, and she was in country, I think for nine months, served with two or three different teams. Um, when she returned to the US and she was trying to demobilize, they require that you do a, um, oh, it's like a psych evaluation and it's a survey and you fill out a bunch of things and it asks you how many times you've seen some types of combat. And so she had written down like, I don't know, 16, she'd been involved in 16 direct. And when the, the um, evaluators, behavioral health people have looked at it, they were like, oh, come on. They literally questioned her and she was like, what? They said, look, if, if this is true, then we can't let you go home. We're going to have to hold you here for a while. And they encouraged her to change her responses on that survey so that she could be released to go back home um, at, with the rest of the ones that were demobilizing. And she said she did. She changed it on her, on her um, I don't know, psych survey at her exit at her demob station um, because they didn't believe it. 
if it had been a man who'd said, I, yeah, a, a guy who's a ranger and been involved in 16 missions, they would have accepted it right out. And he would have been provided resources that she never received. Um, right. The other thing that happened to the because they were attached, they don't return with the guys they've served with or with the units they've served with. They get sent back to other units who have no clue what they've just experienced. They're not sensitive to it. And these women have nobody they can decompress with. They can't talk about situations. They can't work through things um, that they experienced or saw with the same people they experienced and saw it with. And then there are the people that simply just don't believe that they had those experiences. Um, they were denied, in many cases, they were, um, well, like you said, the VA has has denied many of them um, the type of resources and access to um, VA care that they should have gotten because it's not in their records or they weren't assigned to the right units, they weren't combat arms, that kind of thing. Just want to interject. So, so this this whole thread suggests to me again the the wisdom of Kyle Malinek's suggestion and my team's endorsement of the Molly Pitcher title because. All of these women are in effect being told, your experience didn't happen. It's fictional. You're a myth. It wasn't real. You weren't there. Or maybe it's a footnote or there's a special book that we write about women in, you know, and, and this was the thing that, that broke through to us in story after story. The women were actually there, but their narratives were being lost. Their lives were being denied, right? Their reality, their stories were being neglected. That's why the Lioness film is so important. And, and we had hoped that the litigation, I mean, one of the things that we said to the, the folks we were talking about was the important role that litigation could play in being a space to contain narratives, to bring narratives to light. You know, I started to wonder whether law can ever really do that because law doesn't tell complex narratives or less complex narratives. Right. But that was the thing. We just thought this is absolutely outrageous for the military itself to be acting as if all of these women don't exist, which is exactly what the Molly Pitcher, like when you do research into Molly Pitcher, it's like, well, she was fictional or she's a composite or it's not real, you know, or blah, blah, blah. No, there were really women there and in the Revolutionary War, and there certainly were really and are women there in the spaces that we're talking about today. And we just really want to make that be part of the, the history, the discourse, and then ultimately the structures of power going forward. Yeah, well, that actually is a perfect segue. I just have two points. Uh, uh, one point I want to mention before we segue into what I wanted to talk about last, but... Um, it just reminds me that um, when uh, the the women in our film returned home and just at some of the screenings, one of the things that happened was, and we had no one expected this, but sort of out of the woodwork, women who'd served as nurses in Vietnam came out. And so you're talking about women who had been maybe frontline nurses every day seeing, you know, sort of mangled bodies and just like the worst of the worst coming home uh, the and not actually when they came home, not knowing that they could actually be called a veteran, even though they had been a nurse in the army and served for an entire year in that, you know, which was good for nobody <laughs> in terms of what, um, they came out and, and were kind of like this hidden network that emerged to offer um, 
support. And I got to know uh, some of them and it just extraordinary, um, their stories, but they, uh, you know, it brought it all up for them. And so they understood certainly what that was like. But um, Ellen, I just wanted to talk to you because like, it seems like we're at a point now where, you know, trying to recognize the um, the stories and, and um, you know, affirm that these things happened and respond as a society um, to acknowledge this. It, it brings us to the legislation before Congress right now, where uh, all, all we're trying, they're trying to do, people working towards that are trying to get them to retroactively recognize lioness, recognize FETs. Of course, it seems like they was better able to recognize the cultural support teams because perhaps there was more, it was a slightly more formalized, but nobody kept track, real track of the lionesses and even the FETs, which were, I mean, at least they were more predominantly written about in the New York Times and stuff. What? How did we get, how are we still at this point? <laughs> right, so yeah, there's new legislation that's been proposed to recognize specifically the CSTs. And when I saw this legislation, it, it's very limited to a, to a handful of women that served. And by I say a handful, it's like two to 300 women that served on the cultural support teams. Um, but I'm well aware of the women that came before the cultural support teams from the lioness to the female engagement teams. And then just to like one of my colleagues, Tony Rico was a combat reporter, actually she's called a combat journalist. Um, and she served in Iraq twice um, and was awarded with a combat action badge. And she's got an army commendation medal with a valor device. These are women that served in combat, but have not been, received the recognition and the VA support that comes along with that. And so this, this uh, legislation proposed before Congress is only, is limited right now to the CSTs. And I'm like, what? Why would it just be limited to them when there were so many more women that have served in combat, um, especially in those branches like, uh, I mean, a combat journalist. She was yeah. deployed daily with an infantry team um, and received recognition from the team she served with, but doesn't get the same type of VA um, benefits and recognition. This law before Congress, great initiative. I'm glad somebody has done it, but it should not be limited to a, a small handful of women who served with the special operations community. Yeah, I mean, and I, I totally, yeah, it's it's extremely frustrating and I hear your frustration and I, I agree with it. I mean, I, I have the same, just in the terms of I've been able to the extent that it's helpful make them aware of the podcast and we've been trying to give these women a platform to tell their stories but it's kind of a catch-22 because if you were doing especially with the lioness and, and some of the FETs if you were sort of doing it I don't want to say off the books but there was an ad hoc work around the law nature to it well you're not going to have the kind of paperwork but if you require the paperwork for recognition, that's the that's the whole problem. But that anyway, it's just hopefully it'll this will be something that they can break through or uh, you know find a way to do. But um, I want to thank you. I mean, I just want to. Is there anything more that I have that you might want to say that I haven't um, touched on? I've tried to sort of give the 
general outline so we could address everything. But in this story, is there anything that I have that you want to add? Well, I, I, I have one more thing that I want to okay. add that I don't know that I've talked. I haven't talked to Ann in several years now um, that I want her to be aware of. So I've I've subsequently met a number of people that were serving at the Pentagon, especially in the, the legal um, in the JAG Corps. And they said that absolutely those lawsuits had an impact because there was nobody at the Pentagon that wanted to try to defend against this. So they did think that it was, you know, we were at a tipping point, the lawsuits just tipped us. So they have, you know, kind of validated because it was great. It was, it was kind of terrifying to become a plaintiff against the Secretary of Defense. Here I am, you know, I've served my whole life in the Army and I actually loved the Army. But then to sue the Army now and, and to file against the Secretary of Defense, the most senior leader, it was really intimidating. And you're like, was it worth it? And I think um, Anne is modest when she says, you know, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, uh, maybe it did have some impact, but they've since told me, yes, it absolutely had an impact. Well, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, meeting Ellen was, was and always will be one of the most important moments in my professional life. I feel like we spoke right around Thanksgiving day that fall. I think you were in the middle of cooking Thanksgiving dinner and you called me and suddenly we were talking on the phone or I was so excited and called you back. And I'll, I mean, I just never forget the sort of rush of that. And you have spoken a little bit deprecatingly. You know, I was a senior woman. I wasn't really in a position for this. I'm not really sure that I was the right plaintiff. And we were just very convinced by, by that point, and especially after we talked to you, that we needed to push forward with this. We wanted to get the litigation filed. And it was tough. It was tough to find younger women who wouldn't be injured by stepping up and, and having themselves named um, as challenging. I mean, it was incredibly uh, brave what you did. Um, and so I, I, I just have always admired your, your fortitude and your willingness to do that. I mean, again, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that social change, deep social change, is not accomplished by litigation alone. Um, lit it's litigation as an adjunct to a lot of other stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I really think that it, it, that, it, that it made a difference. I certainly know that my students and I got a huge chuckle out of the fact that after Ellen's lawsuit was filed, um, and again, we found a lovely, a wonderful, not just lovely, a fantastic DC law firm, Covington and Burling, who agreed to bring the case pro bono, which was another day on which I was very thankful. Um, I so much to tell you about the backstory of the, the, the litigation. Um, but after the lawsuit was filed, folks from the ACLU Women's Rights Project called and said, basically, how did you do this? Now, I'm imagining that their case was in the works and we or how and why. And my reaction was, well, we've been waiting for you to do it. You know, we've been waiting for, you know, the sort of premier women's rights organizations to do it. And they probably had good reasons for not going forward. There were many points in history where they were afraid, probably correctly so, that they were going to lose. Um, but for whatever reason, things came together in our time frame. And thanks to Ellen, that was the breakthrough through phone call. She called me and said, I saw this story in the military. What was it? The Army Times? Army Times. I saw a story in the Army Times. They say you're working on this project. Let's talk. I was like, bingo. Wow. Yeah. So then that makes me want to ask you one more question, Ellen, and that is once your name became public that you were one of the plaintiffs, one of the two plaintiffs, 
I'm sure you got a lot of support. Did you get, was there anything negative that, you know, was there anyone sort of? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would say I did not get a lot of support. <laughs> um, at first people looked at me like, who are you? Are you crazy? <laughs> that was kind of the, I mean, I had the commander, my commander at the time. I will say too, that what I didn't recognize or understand is a lawsuit when you're a plaintiff kind of protects you also. Um, there wasn't anything anybody could do to me except, you know, express their opinions about what I'd done. So I had the people that were hostile and negative, but I also had a number of supporters. In fact, the very first person that reached out to me was a special forces officer to congratulate me, a special forces major that I had interacted with some point in time. Um, he sent me a really nice email and said, thank you, finally, this should have been done a long time ago. Um, then I met other women over the years. I eventually was assigned up at the Army War College um, and I had people walk up to me in the hallways, men, and shake my hand and say, hey, I, you know, I know what you did, thank you. So yeah, some a lot of positives over the year, but I did have one death threat <laughs> that was serious wow. enough for the FBI to look into it. Um, so, you know, I had this kind of, you know, mixed experience. Mixed experience, yeah. And I mean, I know that, um, you know, when you're put out there in, in such position, you know, and it, it, it was still... I think before decisions are made, it's still, you know, people still think people who might not want it or be against it still think there's room to, you know, kind of create further negative atmosphere to scare you off or whatever. But, um, you know, as a result, like, I mean, I just was so excited reading about both of you and, and the role that you played and, um, in, in doing this and how it just really kind of came about so organically, it just proved to me that it was like really the moment. And even though we're still trying to finish the job, um, anyway, I can't thank you both enough for doing the work that you did and then for being kind enough. I'm sure you've talked about it plenty, but talking about it once more <laughs> and coming on this podcast, I think in the context of the interviews that we're doing, this is really, really important. So I just want to thank you both so much. The stories are fascinating and the work so, so important. And well, we'll see what happens Sorry. with the legislation. Yeah. Well, and thank you, Daria, for pursuing this. And I know you started this podcast and you thought it was going to be kind of limited, but it keeps going because the trajectory, the trajectory of the story has not ended yet. Well, that's what was so amazing to me. And ironically, the, you know, we weren't thinking this long-term when we created Lioness and it came out in 2008, we we're like, okay, now everybody knows, done. <laughs> and, you know, naive because of course that's, you know, but the, I will have to give credit to the lioness women who I know, because with the Veterans Breakfast Club, we had a screening in um, uh, July over the summer. Um, and when I reached back out, I mean, I'm in touch with some of the women, but when I reached back out with them and they all came, it was on Zoom. And But there was a lot of um, 
uh, upset because there was a show that was just going to air on Paramount Plus, a Taylor Sheridan show called Lioness. And it sort of, it takes the word Lioness, but it pushes it forward into uh, some special ops. And, and and they were they were very upset because they felt like, you know, it was a show written by a man, uh, you know, no Lioness women consulting no one consulted no one asked and um and creating the show now i'm all for women uh actresses getting all the juicy roles and proactive roles but i think that many women of the women who had actually served in this roles it had accrued a kind of sacred meaning to them and and anyway it did so thanks to the veterans breakfast club Todd said, well, why don't you do this podcast and we can, we, you know, maybe, maybe the show will just raise the name up in the culture and when we can provide this. So anyway, it's just a shout out to the Veterans Breakfast Club for helping me and encouraging me to do this, but thank you. It wouldn't mean much if great guests like you didn't come on. So thank you very much and just be a great hour and I'll let you know when we're, when it's up. Thank you, Daria. Okay, thank you both. Bye. Bye.